Now, you want to get cracking then, young Martin? Okay. Hold on a minute. Can I find my script? <laughs> That's a good plan. I haven't even printed mine out. I've just been using, I've got like a second laptop sat next to the main computer with it up on screen. So. You're like Martin. Martin, two screens, Gibbons. Well, I've got two screens and my iPad. There's four screens in front of me that only two are in use. I win. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the BBC Light programme. The Tony Hancock Appreciation Society presents ooh, very nearly an armful, a Tony Hancock podcast. Hello and welcome to Very Nearly an Armful, brought to you by the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society. On the podcast, we'll be discussing Tony's famous series, Hancock's Half Hour. We'll discuss the show, its production, and what we liked about it. We rate and review the episode and just generally get our geek on about vintage comedy. We're your hosts. I'm James Griffith. I'm Martin Gibbons. I'm John Street. And I'm Tim Elms. And we're spread across the south of the UK in line from Wiltshire to Essex via Kent. And we have members all over the world. We have members in New Eltham, New Milton, New Jersey and New South Wales. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the East Sheen Drama Festival. This fifth series radio episode was broadcast just a fortnight before the classic Sunday afternoon at home on the 8th of April 1958. In a departure from the usual sitcom, the cast take a break from their regular characters and perform three short comedy plays. But first of all, chaps, what's everyone been up to this week? Well, I've been uh, digitising some 30 to 40 videotapes of various bits and pieces for, for Tesla Labar, um, which include sort of various comedy documentaries and interviews with TV spots with people like Frankie Howard and Spike Milligan and things. And, um, yeah, just sort of going through quite a few of them were in a, a little bit of a mouldy state, but a bit of gentle cleaning and things like that has... Um, enabled them to, to be played back with, and I've got something off them, so that's not too shabby. And uh, even more pleasingly, we've we found some interviews that from our own video archive that were courtesy of the, the wonderful Mick Dawson and in having a dig around in the shed. Uh, and I've also been digitising those, and those include unique interviews with various people who were in Hancock's Half Hour back in the early 90s when, when our society member Dave Miles interviewed them. So rather pleasing haul yeah it sounds like a fantastic haul and really looking forward to seeing some of those uh, long lost interviews from the society's past mm. uh, that's uh, no, a great job john one of the things i've been doing in the last week is uh well it's reading a book really i, I bought a book off ebay that i saw advertised and uh, it mentioned hancock and i thought i'll have a look at that and it's a book about cars and basically, it's a book about celebrity cars, and there's various photographs of celebrities with their cars in this book. Needless to say, there's, there's a page on Tony Hancock. I'm not too sure how accurate all this is because there's a couple of mistakes in it. I mean, for example, when he's talking about Hancock, he talks about the, uh, the car crash that he was in when his wife Cicely was driving just before the blood donor, uh, and he says that as a result of this car crash, the recording and the broadcast of the programme were seriously delayed. Of course, they weren't. That was the whole point. They went ahead as planned with uh, less rehearsal time. I suppose the production was delayed in terms of rehearsals were delayed. But... Well, rehearsal time was shortened, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he said 
there's a picture of Hancock and his wife Cicely with their uh, Mercedes 300 SL. Um, it's the picture of the car being loaded on the aeroplane at the airport, which I think we've seen a number of times. Yes, we have. I think there's a few biographies and there's a photo of him and Cicely by a fancy sporty car. It must be that one. Yeah, mm. yeah. But it says here, Tony was such a rubbish driver that he went everywhere by plane, which is not exactly true. I mean, he didn't <laughs> drive. Cicely drove. But the, the reason the car was on the aeroplane was because it needed to go across the channel and there wasn't a tunnel in those days. So, um, But it's, uh, it's, it's quite an interesting book. But what it also says is that apparently the car was a stumbling block in uh, Hancock and Cicely's divorce. Um, I hadn't realised that. She, because she drove it, she wanted it as part of the divorce settlement. But I've, oh. I've, never, seen, I've never seen that anywhere before. Um, and as I said, there's a couple of other errors in the book, so I'm not sure whether you know, we can say for sure that's the case. And there's also, further on in the book, there's a, a section on Sid James, which is quite interesting. And there's a little Hancock-related story in that because it says... It refers to Sid James being more associated with a black cab than any other sort of car because he, he appeared as a cab driver in several films and stuff. The film, and the series Taxi, wasn't it? He was quite well known for him playing a cabbie yes. as well as yep. yeah. obviously Carry On Cabbie. On one occasion, he was going to a Hancock recording, apparently, and um, he was in the back of a cab and, and the cab driver cut up a bubble car and uh, the cab driver shouted an anti-Semitic remark to the bubble car driver, at which point Sid said to the driver, stop the car. He pulled the driver out the cab and beat him up, basically, and they had oh. a fight at the side of the road. And um, apparently, um, as a result, he, he was late for the recording with Hancock. Oh, interesting. So that's a story you haven't heard before, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating one. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of people in this book, including... Peter Sellers and Hilda Baker, even got Sandy Shaw and The Saint. So what's the title of the book, Tim? So the title of the book is Stars, Cars and Infamy, 100 Stories of the Bad, the Daft and the Deadly. <laughs> it's like a picture book type thing. I can't help but think, infamy, infamy, they've all got it infamy. Well, exactly, oh, yes. no. That's right. Whenever I see that word, <laughs> I think of that. Um, <laughs> it's... Uh, it's, it's, yes, it's, it's a strange little book. And unfortunately, it's also, they've also got a special chapter on dictators. So you've got things on Adolf Hitler's car and Mussolini and lots of horrible people like that, which kind of spoils it a bit. But um, anyway, if, if you're a car enthusiast and quite into uh, people of this sort of, particularly this sort of time, 60s and 70s type stuff, it's um, quite interesting. I say I got it for a few quid on eBay and, and I noticed nice. there are, other copies to sell on there as well. Mm. Oh, I might have to uh, look that one up. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it does sound interesting, actually. Mm. Yeah, I, I've also been having a, a, a flick at a book this week. I've picked up a new book called Radio Times 1960s. Um, that's got a, a very nice piece on, um, on the 1961 Hancock series, um, some lovely little extracts from the Radio Times, and there's a piece in the book on Steptoe and Son as well and, and Doctor Who. So it's a, a new publication from the Radio Times. So well, well worth a look. Um, Radio Times in the 60s. It's got some new interviews in there as well. Very well put together. That's That's been great. And I don't know if any of you spotted quite recently on television mm. that they've re-shown, and it's the first time I'd seen it, Philomena Kunk, as in Diane Morgan, uh, on Shakespeare. 
I'd never seen yeah. that one before. Yeah, I think I, I, I saw that about, well, I saw some of it about a month ago, I think, on that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just watched her um, Kunk on Earth. Kunk yeah. on Earth was the latest yeah, one. Yeah. I watched that that was the latest series. Yeah. Binge yeah. watched it over the course of an afternoon or an evening yeah. or something. It was, it was quite entertaining. We, we, yeah. we should explain to listeners here that, that Diane Morgan is a huge fan of Hancock and she featured in the uh, TV documentary that came out in January called Very Union Armful. And she's also due to be a guest at the Society's annual dinner this year in Soli Hole in September. So uh, that, that's the connection there with Diane Morgan. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to uh, hopefully, hoping that we will see her in, uh, in September. Be nice, won't it? Subject to commitments, as, as well, always, yes, with, uh, as with always, all these yeah. big stars. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I thoroughly enjoyed that. I thought that was brilliant. But glad you enjoyed Kunk on Earth, John. My, my favourite was the mm. description of um, the old country of Russia, which he very carefully described as the Soviet Union. So the onion, <laughs> yes, yeah. And then then asks uh, a, a professor with a very deadpan face to talk about onions. He's like, well, there's, there's not much to talk about. What was the Soviet onion? Well, I think you're labouring under a misapprehension, and you probably mean the Soviet Union. No, it's onion. I saw it on a bit of paper earlier. Well, it's probably been misspelt, or you can't read very well, but I think that you mean in historical terms the Soviet Union or the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Oh, I don't want to be rude, but I think you're mansplaining a bit. Can we stick to the topic of the Soviet Union, please? OK. What exactly was it? If you don't know, it's OK to say, you know, I won't judge you. Well, if you want to talk about sort of Russian Soviet vegetables, we can. I mean, it was a deeply agrarian country. And so there were lots of onions, lots of potatoes, lots of other things. Did they have turnips? I think so. Cheap, easy to grow, hardy, great in a stew. I'm sure quite a lot of the academics they've had on for a few series know it's a comedy show by now, but are told to play it deadpan. They must do. They must well, do. I, I was um, watching her. There's quite a bit of Diane on YouTube, and uh, I put one on the other night, and you know, once you've watched one, it ultimately actually comes up the next one. But basically, there was an, in an interview she did on American television in New York. Um, I can't remember the interviewer's name, but um, because she's, she's very big in America with this stuff, because it's on Netflix. Yeah. And uh, the guy asked her, you know, do the people you're interviewing know what's going on? Do they know they're being sent up? And she said they know it's a comedy show, but she doesn't tell them the questions in advance. And uh, she said they usually respond accordingly and play along. She said if they don't get it, basically they cut it out, it doesn't get broadcast. So, um, but yeah, she seemed to say they, they, they did know it was a comedy show and it was a wind up, yeah. but they, they weren't told in advance what the questions were. To get a natural reaction, of course, to the comedy yeah. of it. Yeah. 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 I mean, so the only thing I've watched really, I watched uh, Carry On Cowboy last night. Oh, right. Which I've not seen in years. And it's, I think it's, it's not if it's one of my favourites, but it's quite an underrated gem. You've got is that the one where Sid is? What's that character? Sid? The Rumpo Kid. Rumpo That's Kid. The Rumpo Kid. Yes. And you've got you've got John Pertwee as the old sheriff Erp at the beginning, who gets mm. killed off by by the Rumpo Kid, and he's great pratfalls on comedy. And this is just what a couple of years before he did Doctor Who and something like that, probably. And you've got Kenneth Williams playing very much a character part of this old. He's playing older, he's got the mutton chops and the moustache, and he's, well, bye, you know, 
he's very much that American sort of I'm much older than I am kind of thing going on throughout the whole film. So mm. it's quite mm. different to see Kenneth not playing Alan mm. Lane, he's not missing about and that kind of <laughs> typical carry on new mission. So that was quite enjoyable. This is Carry On Cowboy. I wonder what they wanted. I thought I heard shots just now. Uh, it's probably just a horse backfire. Sidney James as the notorious Rumpo Kid. I am the mayor. You better keep away from my horse. He ain't seen a mayor in three weeks. Kenneth Williams as the mayor of Stodge City. Yeah, it's a good film. And there was a programme on Channel 5. It was on a few weeks ago. Mm. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a new look at the carry-on films with uh, contributions from our very own Julian Dutton. Yes, it was called... Um, was it Secrets and Scandals of the yeah, carry Yeah, I think I spoke about that, didn't I, a couple of weeks yeah. ago? When yeah, 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 yeah. In the last one, yeah. I've not watched it, but I have... It's, in fact, I think someone's even put it on YouTube. But yeah, it's on my to-watch list. It's, uh, it should be quite interesting. It was interesting. I enjoyed that one. Yeah, it's a good look at the carry-ons. A bit of a different look. Mm. Some really interesting sort of um, rare interviews that I don't think had, had been broadcast. Well, I had, certainly hadn't seen them before. That was really good. Mm. What about yourself, James? What have you been up to? Well, um, I've been spent the weekend, me and my partner, getting married in oh, um, a couple of months. So. Congratulations. Many congratulations. Thank you very much. So lots of spare time is taking up running around... Suits measured, ordering, spending money through the nose on various items that I didn't know cost quite so much money. Well, as soon as the word mm. wedding comes into it, the price goes up three times, they say, don't they? Uh, the yeah. price just goes up, doesn't it? Mm. Um, so is it, it, for the last few weeks, it hasn't been much time for TV uh, mm. or films or anything that, uh, you know, anything that's, I'd say, relaxing. There's been lots of driving here, there and everywhere, getting children measured up and coordinating different people and yeah it's it's been quite a hectic few weeks to be honest mm-hmm. but uh so not 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 much of interest to be honest fairy snuff fairy snuff so then i guess it's time for any uh hancock headlines we have for, for this week young martin yeah so some really good news for hancock fans uh the bbc bbc audio are going to be releasing the lost episode, The Marriage Bureau, which was found a couple of years back and broadcast last October on Radio 4. Uh, that's being released on BBC Audio CD and download. And we're delighted that the release will also include the brilliant Keith Wickham documentary, Raiders of the Lost Archive, which talks about the amazing work that the Radio Circle does in buying up reel-to-reel tapes and finding lost episodes. Mm. And then we have in the Society's Archive a very short seven-minute extract from the Lost Hancock's Half Hour, The New Year Resolutions. And John has done a great job on doing some restoration work on that. And that's also included in the release. Yeah. And finally, the lovely documentary by Andrew Sachs on Hancock's 75th birthday called Happy Birthday, Hancock. Uh, which runs for about an hour with lots of great extracts and brilliant interviews. Um, so that is also included. And I've been pleased to work with Keith Wickham, who did the audio restoration um, in putting together some of the some of the sleeve notes for the release. So that is due to be released 1st of June, and it's available now from, for pre-order from BBC Audio, Penguin Random House. And I think it's going to be available on a number of download platforms, including Audible and, and um, plenty of others as well. Um, so really looking forward to that coming out 1st of June. 
Fantastic, yes. And I, of course, we're nearly approaching the 100th birthday of Tony Hancock. So that documentary is from presumably the, um, God, what, 25 years ago, nearly 24 years ago. So that's what? 24 years ago, yes. Uh, mid 90s, mid to late 90s. Yes. Yeah, we're back in one hour of youth. In fact, I probably remember it being broadcast. Uh, and of course, it was great fun um, tinkering with our seven minute clip of the, the New Year's resolutions. And uh, it's got, at the moment, it's got a little. In bit of the intro theme and the closing theme of Hancock's Hair either side of it, which is the nearest episode that exists to when it was broadcast. So, um, well done, yeah, well I'm done, quite, quite pleased with that. I've got a little credit and everything, very nice, yeah, yeah very good. Yeah, no, it was uh, uh, good, a good restoration. And as you say, it's nice having the, the little musical piece to introduce and, and to close it. And Kenneth's missing line where there's a hole in the tape, and I've added, Sorry, sir, no. Because those three words don't exist in the recording. So. I know they were missing. I know yeah. they were missing. So, no, it's really good. And um, the Marriage Bureau was uh, restored by Keith Wickham. He did say he didn't have a lot of work to do on it because it was mm. a really good quality off-air recording. Yeah. Um, but Keith has done an amazing job on them. Um, uh, he had to um, recreate the opening because I think the opening... He did that very well, didn't he? It's... He did it brilliantly. You can tell he's used a sort of vintage yeah. mic or something to get that sort of 50s effect he he does the announcer's voice doesn't he and you put the music on and everything and that's right i think anyone listening to it now wouldn't realize it's been cobbled together like that by someone today no Brilliant. not at all no because yeah. i think it was the the opening two or three sentences were missing from the reel to reel um but they were just the announcer so there was no need for any sort of impersonations of tony or bill or anybody else no. um so it was um no it was really well done and and with the opening music added back in um it, it makes a it makes a brilliant episode and unless you're a fan of thomas and friends for which i understand keith does quite a, a bit of voice work playing the fat controller and various characters you, you probably won't otherwise know the voice <laughs> yeah he's done i think he's done quite a lot of voiceovers over the years so I gather from a podcast interview on GoonPod, which we can highly recommend as an entertaining and interesting podcast to, to listen to. Mm. And we should mention also, I guess, that, um, and I'm expecting it will be live by the time this goes live, that GoonPod invited the four of us to join the GoonPod to talk about the Marriage Bureau. Um, and we're expecting that that will be live and uh, available for you to, to listen to um, at the point this one oh. I'll say that all again, shall I? <laughs> it should be live at the point this this one goes. Oh, have a run at it. Take a run at it. Should, <laughs> have a run at it. It should be live at the point this podcast is also live. Excellent stuff. Another piece of news is that um, we're very pleased to be going back to the Riverside Studios for another screening. So the Riverside Studios in Hammersmith, in London, is where a number of episodes of Hancock's Half Hour TV were made back in the day i think it's from series two on to the end of uh, series six obviously the the old studios are not there anymore and a new facility has been built on the site but uh we've been going there we, we've done uh, four screenings so far and we've been invited back and the public are invited back for uh, a fifth screening in june so it's going to be on saturday the 24th of june it's two o'clock in the afternoon at the Riverside Studios in London, and we'll be showing three episodes of Hancock's Half Hour upscaled on the big screen, and they are The Lawyer, The Set That Failed, and The Cold. Martin and I will do an introduction before the uh, episodes come on, 
And then we'll uh, take some questions afterwards, which uh, is usually a lively affair. The last one we went to, was it back in the end of February? We had three episodes there, including the reunion party. And it was brilliant that one of the actors who appeared in the reunion party was able to join us that afternoon, born the same year as Hancock, Laurie Webb, came along and uh, came up and spoke to the audience. Absolutely fantastic. I'm sure he won't mind us saying he's 98 years old. God, blimey. Fighting, fighting fit. He, he ran up the stairs quicker than Martin or I could. And uh, we, he got a, a fantastic ovation from the audience there. People were standing and cheering him. He's very Amazing. popular with fans because he's, as yeah. John will know, he's also been in Doctor Who. And over the years, he's been to a lot of Doctor Who conventions and that and met the fans and signed autographs. This and is uh, in the Three Doctors, the 10th anniversary special as a fisherman. Is it Mr. Ollis or something he plays? Yeah, Reg Ollis or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But this is the first time he's come to a Hancock event. And I think we've mentioned him on the podcast before because we spoke to him on the phone. We've included an interview clip of him before. We have. We've had clips with him, but he doesn't remember much about it because obviously it was just something he did back in the day. But um, he he, he loves talking about his career and his life and all that sort of thing. And he's he's great fun. So that was really good. That was was, uh, back in February. So the next one of these uh, screenings, as I said, 24th of June, Riverside Studios. And hopefully we'll have a bit of sunshine and, and be able to sit outside and bask in the warmth with a nice drink or something. Oh, yes. Mm, that sounds like a good plan because it's a beautiful setting on the banks of the Medway right next to Hammersmith Bridge. On the banks of the Medway? What? What? I don't know what planet I'm on tonight. <laughs> on the banks of the Thames. <laughs> on the banks of the Thames right next to Hammersmith Bridge. So it's, it's, it mm. is a lovely setting. Mm. Yeah. The Medway is quite nice as well, but nowhere near Hammersmith. <laughs> nowhere near it nowhere near it so i think it's time for the tweets and emails have you got any uh, tweets this week young tim i did receive a tweet a little while ago well, I, saw, I saw a tweet from a guy called matthew crosby and he mentioned that his dad had appeared in hancock's australian tv series oh. so i thought i'd uh, follow that up i looked in roger wilmot's book to see the cast and yes he appeared don crosby or something isn't it the actor I'm trying, to, I'm trying to find his name now because he I just, just says dad in the email. What was it? So anyway, I contacted uh, Matthew. He said he was very young at the time, didn't know much about it. Don Crosby is Don Crosby played Mervyn. Oh, okay. Uh, the sort of quite Bill Kerr type character, quite deadpan. Oh, no, you're not going to do that, right. are you, Hancock? Uh, yeah. In the first third of the Australian TV special as it came out. I thought you might like a pint. Have you any idea what time it is? Uh, yeah, it's uh, about six o'clock. That'd make it ten o'clock in London and in Hong Kong. It is the about... cocktail hour, and you bring me a pint of crudely iced beer wearing what I can only describe as totally informal dress. <laughs> At the cocktail hour, be it in Bombay or Brixton, people should be properly attired. Just because you've only got one suit. As we near your former home in the Antipodes, Mervyn, I deduce signs of you getting above yourself. Remember you've been in Britain for the past six years and our influence throughout the world is built upon a tradition of observing social rituals such as the cocktail hour. Now kindly go and get properly dressed. It's no good living in the past, Hancock. They weren't put up with all that class bit over there. How won't they? We'll soon see about that. But just looking at the cast list, there's also somebody called The Boy. 
who's Marshall Crosby. That's right. Oh. That's what I was coming to. So brother, brother Marshall played the young boy, but also his mum is listed there as Betty Crosby. If you look underneath in the uncredited people. Oh, yes. So yes. I said to them, is, is that a relative? And they said, yeah, that's their mum. So it oh. was mum, dad and son who all appeared in, in this programme. Mm. Oh, so the whole, the whole, they're all, all the Crosbys in this Hancock Australian thing were related. Yeah. I mean, they said they, they've seen it. They said their dad doesn't, it's not a very good part for his dad. They said their dad was a very good actor, actually, they said. But uh, they said, obviously, an actor is only as good as the script and the production, etc. Um, so that they don't think it's a very good example of his work, which is fair enough. But, but Marshall made a good point when, when he, he emailed me. I mean, he was only a child at the time when he made it, but um, he, he has some memories of shooting it. But what he, the point he makes, which I, I hadn't really thought of before, he said, um, whose idea was it to follow a man from Britain to Sydney on a boat for him to establish a, a new life, go out and about, but actually none of it is done on location? So you've got this, this whole series about a man leaving Cheam and going to Australia to start anew. Yeah. And it, it could, in theory, have been done in a studio anywhere in the world. I mean, <laughs> in fact, there was, there was a suggestion at one stage that they should film it back in London, and I, I know that. But it just seems daft, doesn't it, going all the way across to Australia to do this and not have Sydney Opera House in the background or some, you know, some sort of yeah. out, outdoor thing. And I hadn't really thought of that before. Yeah. That's very true, actually, no. Because yeah. the only location shots in that programme are of him from behind carrying his bags, and that is a double filmed after the event of his, his death. Marshall said that he had to go back to finish off, and uh, there was a body double doing over-the-shoulder shots and stuff like that. But I think they used it fairly in a fairly limited way in the final thing because I don't think it quite matched up. But the final special was a compilation of the first three episodes, so I think they had a few things to establish. We don't usually talk about the Australian series, do we? And, and I can't say I'm a huge fan of it at all, but uh, it's, it's interesting nonetheless to find yeah. you know connections with people who've actually been in it and stuff. So uh... It's another piece of jigsaw in the story, isn't it, I guess? So... Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is, and I think the thing is, it it's not the best thing viewing wise, but there are little flashes and moments, and you think of what could have been, and there's a few mm. little bits in it that work really mm. nicely, a few scenes, and there's some that don't mm. so much, but the story is pretty non-existent, so that mm. does let it down, I think, uh, to some extent. Yeah, it doesn't help. Yeah, yeah, and and the other thing, of course, is that people often speak about which cast members are still surviving these days, and there's not many of them left. But uh, obviously with young Marshall there, he's, he's actually, I don't know how old he was in 1967. He's probably younger than me, I should think. He's probably, he's probably about 60-odd, I guess, now. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, whereas, you know, sometimes you scrabble around to find people who are still with us, and so many have sadly mm. gone. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's another one who's... Um, still here and, and has first-hand uh, knowledge of him. Well, yeah, it's like any of those things, I suppose, if you think of, like, who's still alive that was in a Hitchcock film, where there's probably very mm. few of those, Tippi Hendren and one or two others, but um, not a vast quantity of people. Cool, so I guess then uh, we will uh, move on to our main subject of the East Cheam Drama Festival. Now, this is quite interesting in, in that 
Uh, it's one of those portmanteau ones, isn't it? Mm. James's favourite is up there. Yeah, mm. I absolutely love this episode. I feel it's quite revolutionary. Well, anyway, we I could sit here, we could sit here every week and talk about how revolutionary everything was in terms of Hancock, in terms of the scripts and the acting mm. and the way it's filmed. But I feel this is a real show of confidence from Galton and Simpson, I think, um, and Tony Hancock to, to execute a radio show performing three plays within a radio show. It almost sort of breaks that, I don't know if it even breaks the fourth wall. I don't know what wall that would be breaking, but yeah, I think it's excellently, excellently done. And it's just so funny. I think some of the key moments in there, Sid plays an absolute blinder. And Kenneth paying a multitude of uh, parts. A multitude? That he's stolen from other, other various <laughs> character actors. And then you can hear him sort of laughing in there. Oh, he's got yeah. a great laugh at the back of, as soon yeah. as he says a multitude the second time. Mr. Kenneth Williams, the celebrated character actor, will be seen in a multitude of parts. A multitude. <laughs> All of which he has pinched from other celebrated character actors. I can very, I can remember very vividly uh, listening to this in the car with my dad, and just both cracking up at Sid's laugh when he's introduced as the as uh, Jasper Stonyheart, the landlord. He mm. opens a door and he's <laughs> it's just that wood alcohol laugh. Um, I remember just <laughs> rewinding that and listening to it over and over again. Dear, <laughs> who's that? I wonder. It's Jack! It's Jack's return home! <laughs> Tis I, Jasper Stoneyart, the landlord. Oi, what? Get off my foot. <laughs> if you're going to come on leaping in here, watch where you're landing. <laughs> oh, sorry, huh? Tis I, Jasper Stoneyart, the landlord. I've come for the rent. We can't pay it. We haven't got a penny piece, have we, Joshua? <laughs> oh, shut up! <laughs> Of course, what was what's so good with this one was it was about well the first two of the little plays um, came out on the LP pieces of Hancock in 1960. Yeah. Um, so this is one of the one of the episodes that's sort of been available almost since it was broadcast for for people to buy. Well, two thirds of it anyway. Well, two thirds of it, yeah. But I think yeah. it's about 19 minutes on the pieces of Hancock LP, and now it's on CD. Um, with a nice little introductory commentary from uh, from Tony. And then it appeared on the EP Little Pieces of Hancock, as Tim's just showing on the screen. <laughs> Not that you can see that at home, listener. But yeah, I had a copy on tape of this episode, and it was just the 20-minute version with no third sketch. So those first two, I rate the third one less so. I mean, it's quite interesting, because this is one of those ones that... Galton Simpson did this sort of three-part three-part sketch show or portmanteau show, and this is from the fifth series. So the interesting thing is that looking at that, they used to have these sort of ideas they couldn't quite flesh out into a full episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they'd create one of these episodes, and there's one in every series. Did you notice this? I looked them over. I knew about the three sons and the um, the Somerset Maud one. Yeah, the Hancock the Hancock Festival. In series one, you had the lost episode, the Hancock Festival. Yeah. In series two, you had the three sons. Three sons. Yep. In the third series, you've got sort of the trial of Father Christmas, which has three sketches of what Santa's up to. 
or various Santas. Oh, right. I haven't, I don't, yeah, yes. I hadn't really thought of it like that. In the fourth series, you've got the diary. Yes, the diary's good. In this series, yep. you've then got the East Team Drama Festival. Yeah. So yeah. they had one that was very similar, but they had one in every series where they kind of mm. cobbled together their little ideas for sketches that you couldn't quite stretch out to 30 minutes, and you've got one of these little beauties. Does anyone know, and I'm asking this because I don't know, obviously, but... Does anyone know what these three plays, if they were uh, based on any particular TV show or play at the time? The first one is the first one that look back, uh, look back in hunger. No, no. The f first one's Jack's Return Home. I don't. I don't think the first one is is based on on anything that I know of. Specifically, it's sort of a send up of that Victorian melodrama. It it is. Of. Yes, absolutely right. The cigarette case that stops the bullet mm. and those sort of tropes, I suppose. Mm. I just laugh so much. They think, do you recognise me without the wig on? Like a wig is all it takes to disguise a whole family. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> and it's been 13 years. Yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> Good heavens, Frederick. Yes, Frederick. What do you say to that, Jasper Stonyheart? I'm not Jasper. I've been wearing this wig and pretending to be Jasper. This is who I really am. There. Good heavens, Jonathan. Yes, Jonathan. I didn't trust either of you, especially you, Martha. And you were right not to, Jonathan, for you see, I am not Martha. <laughs> not Martha? No. There. Now do you recognise me? Gad, tis Gladys. Yes, Gladys, the girl you wronged. Then who prays the poor wretch we've killed? Fear not! You didn't kill me. I was saved by my silver cigarette case. There! Do you not recognise me without the wig? Yes, I should have guessed Well, it's thing. like Clark Kent, isn't it, you know, with the glasses on? Take them off, Superman, you know. <laughs> well, at least we know why everyone's so confused about whoever it is. He goes, oh, he doesn't live here, does he? Yes, that's right. Yeah. That was a great final line to sketch. It's, I mean, it I'm is. jumping forward a bit, but well, we know he doesn't live here after all, does he? It's just such a ridiculous, surreal thing, but wonderfully done and wonderfully hammed up by the lot of them. Well, well, Ronald. Well, well, Frederick. Well, well, Jonathan. Well, well, Gladys. Well, at least we know now why Jack never returned home. Why? Well, he doesn't live here. I was going to say, I love the intersections as well from about the boxing. Uh, is it the um, the army versus the, the, the police? The army yeah. versus the police, yeah. PC yeah. Harry Street knocked out uh, someone in the third round. Was that a thing then? Was it the? Uh, I, I think I think you've gone on. That's in the second one, isn't it? That's in um, Look Back in Hunger. Just after Look Back in Hunger, I think mm. it is all halfway through. So yeah. you've got yeah. obviously a Victorian melodrama in general, a bit of a trope of all of that kind of stuff, and then it's Look Back in Anger, isn't it? You were saying, Tim. Yes, Look Back in Hunger. It's called here, but that's based on the John Osborne play, which mm. is uh, Look Back in Look Back in Anger. I'm not sure whether it was the film version or the stage version had just come out, but, I mean, it was highly topical at that time. But what, as I say, what, what's interesting also about that is that it was described, I mean, that the term kitchen sink drama came out about that time mm. for these sorts of plays and things. Yep. And Galton and Simpson were highly uh, motivated by that, not, not just the actual theme, but sort of the whole thing about kitchen, kitchen sink dramas. And, and a lot of the Tony and Sid and Bill stuff is about sitting around the table reading the mm. newspapers and that, which which is straight out of John Osborne. And I, I think they were highly influenced by all, by all this. And you know there there are there are actually lines 
in the playlist there, you know, that joke where he says, shut up and put your trousers on. That is a, a direct <laughs> link to uh, look back in anger when one of the uh, characters and that does indeed take his trousers off to enable them to be ironed. I mean, it sounds doesn't sound very interesting, but it, as part of the play, it's, it's actually an important part, part of that play. But the, the other thing about it is that Look Back in Anger, the play, is set on a boring Sunday afternoon. Mm. And two weeks later, of course, they did Sunday afternoon at home. So you could say they both can link back to that play in, in many oh, respects. Yeah, because mm. the, play, the play came out in 1956. So that would have still been running. It would have still yeah. been running, presumably, when this, yeah. I think so. The film version came out after this episode or shortly After beforehand. this, yeah. Is that Richard yeah, Burton, so. wasn't it, in the film? Possibly. I'm not too sure. Mm. I've not seen it. But I love that, as you say, Tim, it's John Osborne's play, um, Look Back in Anger. And, of course, John Osborne becomes John Eastbourne. Eastbourne. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. In, in this episode, which yeah. is, uh, you know, which is great. Here is the East Team Repertory Company in John Eastbourne's Look Back in Hunger. <laughs> and I, I did look it up and it described as uh, the life and mental struggles of an intelligent and educated, disaffected man. A realist play, as you say, mm. Mm. another word for kitchen sink drama. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. I, I mean, the the thing is as well is that the look back in anger, the play is what spawned the term angry young man, which indeed. is a phrase you hear. Yes, mm. that rant about the tea is absolutely sublime and so absurdist, but wonderfully performed by Bill. He's so good in that, and you think then he subsequently can't remember a single line in the third play. <laughs> Such a different characterization and performance from young Billy Kerr. Would you like some tea, Jimmy? Tea, tea, is that your answer to it all? Tea, the panacea of the middle class, the answer to all the problems facing mankind today. Have a cup of tea, Jim. <laughs> you both make me sick. You're dead, both of you. You're both mentally dead. Your souls are drowned in tea. Your minds are clogged up with tea bags. You're like two slop basins swimming around in a sea of tea. Just like this country, the whole rotten system stained in a tea of apathy. What's he mean, Mum? <laughs> I don't think he wants a cup of tea. The film was made in 1959, and it was indeed Richard Burton. Yeah. Slightly yeah. different from, from Bill Kerr, but I think, you know... Bill could have been up there with the Burtons and people and the the Brandos and things like that from some of his radio stuff. He was uh, wonderfully overacting slash acting wonderfully in this. I'm not quite sure which. Well, mm. well, I thought the look back in Hunger sketch was fascinating because apart from the very, very beginning, you haven't got Tony in it at all. It's almost three minutes without yes. Hancock saying a yeah. word. Yeah. And I reckon it's, yeah. it must be the longest section in any surviving Hancock's half hour where Hancock actually doesn't speak. You don't really notice it, do you? Because it's so well no. performed by the rest of them. No. Yes. There, there, there is another, I can't remember which one it is, but there's another episode where Hancock is late coming in at the beginning. And this always, to my mind, it always goes against this argument that uh, in one of the episodes that wasn't shown, they say oh, you know, Hancock complained that he wasn't in it enough and it was too much of Bill and all this. You know, it just goes against the grain because there are episodes where, like this one and, and others, where you don't hear Hancock for several minutes. Yeah, that was the counterfeiter, I think, wasn't it? That where, was it, yeah. Where, yeah. where Bill was um, in it a lot more than, than Tony. Um, and that was remade um, as part of the missing Hancocks. Yeah, yeah. 
it's just what people claim you know people say oh why wasn't the counterfeiter made and people come out with these suggestions that hancock rejected it because he's not in it enough i mean that that just isn't hancock's way and it, that's it, just people's conjecture isn't yeah, it and, yeah and and it's not based on any fact or evidence whatsoever you know but uh anyway i divert as James was saying the bits in between of young Kenneth up close to the microphone doing his announcer bit and I say Dolly I'll, I'll have one of those drinks on a stick too yeah. please mm. lines are great you know uh, and that whole introduction the play is set in middle class suburbia and deals with a young misfit in society misunderstood by his parents and the world in general Dolly I'll have one of those drinks on a stick please thank you <laughs> there's a quite a lot of laughing where as James was saying, where he's a multitude, multitude of parts, he's pinched from other well-known characters, actors. Ken has a <laughs> in the yes. background, like a yeah. bleating sheep. Yeah. Uh, and there's a bit where Sid laughs quite a bit in reaction to um, where Bill's saying prompt and stuff. And it's not your turn. You can hear Sid laughing uh, in the background there. Hello, Sam. Hello, Jimmy. Uh, um, uh, prompt. <laughs> Hello, Mum. <laughs> Hello, Mum. Er, uh, prompt. <laughs> Hello, Dad. <laughs> Hello, Dad. Er, uh, prompt. <laughs> it's not your turn. <laughs> There's lots of little bits where you just can hear the sort of the, the laughter actually in the, the tone of the voice. But the multitude of parts bit, when I looked at the script, it's only in there once. So Tony repeating it wasn't in the original script. Uh, but that, yeah. gets such, that gets such an extra laugh, particularly from Kenneth in the background, mm. as you say. Mm. Mm. He, he has repeated a line on occasion. Sometimes if it's covered up by applause, for example, he'll do it. But yes. sometimes I think if he just thinks it's a funny line, I'll just say it again, you know, and I, I think it's probably one of those. It didn't sound like he got the reaction he wanted at yeah, the first, because yeah, he does yeah. repeat it again, doesn't he? You're building yeah. the audience up, aren't you? You know, yeah. that's the kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah. So um, the couple of references, I guess, so the, the army versus police boxing match, was that a thing? Was was army versus I think it was, yeah. I think what happened, um and I think we spoke about this um when we talked about we talked about ITV coming in on the scene. I didn't want to do this acting like in the first place. I wish I'd stayed at home and watched the boxing. Was there some boxing on tonight? <laughs> yeah. Some amateur fights. Oh, I wish I'd known. I say get on with it. Oh wait! Well rather. Come on, Sid, let's whip this through. We might be able to see the last few rounds. We're very unprofessional. We've come to see a play. I'm just conferring with my fellow artiste. I say, yeah. you don't happen to know what time the boxing finishes? <laughs> I say, is there some boxing on tonight? Yes, the amateurs, the police versus the army. A few good punch-ups there, I reckon. <laughs> and uh, I seem to have read somewhere that there was quite a scrabble back in the day to get sport on TV. Both channels were trying to get hold of sport. And uh, it's, you know, some, some, it's like ITV, for example, probably before your time, James and John, but Saturday afternoon around half past four, they used to have wrestling. Um, and oh, one yes. of the reasons they had, they had the wrestling every week was because it was, it was a cheap sport 
to, to buy into and to broadcast. Mm-hmm. And they used to go around to these various town halls and that. And you had, you know, some of the wrestlers of the day were, you know, you know, people like Nick McManus and Big Daddy and people like that were, were hugely popular. And I think Giant Haystack. Yeah. And, and I Tim think Elms. this boxing thing was the same. Yeah, <laughs> this, this, this boxing thing, I think, was, was similar to that in that if, if you had amateur fights like the police and the, the Navy and the Army and, and all these um, organizations did have boxing scenes, you wouldn't see it on the TV now. But back in the day, it, it, was, it was cheap for them to get and, mm-hmm. and to put out. Yeah, I mean, as, uh, as well, I love like, PC Harry Street, old Uncle Harry uh, in, in that one. I mean, one of the bizarre things, just vaguely off topic, is one of the tapes I recorded from 1988 is a variety club lunch after dinner speech, which is like a posh version of one of our reunion events. And it was for Bill Cotton OBE for some anniversary or another and it was like an hour of program on bbc one in 1988 it's just you can't imagine it's quite a rare thing i don't imagine that being a broadcastable event these mm, days mm, so mm. yeah things were different back in the day mm. well another thing i like is that in the uh, i think it's in jack return home uh hancock is joshua isn't he and he sounds very much like joshua in the bowman's yeah when it, when it gets to Welsh, I'm going to pack it up or something. Yeah. something like that. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Default language, is it? Default um, accent. He's doing the John Pertwee, when you're implanting your onions, <laughs> voices again in this one. And yeah, you have great fun doing it. Flowers is all right, but it's taters that feed you. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> when it gets to Welsh, I'm packing it up. <laughs> Ah, we've been a great comfort to each other through all our long years of poverty while Jack was a boy. And our years of even more poverty while he's been gone. And then thinking of accents, you've then got the brilliant Sid and, Happy, uh, and Hattie doing the, uh, the, the German accent. Oh, my for, word. As, as, as Beethoven's mum and dad in the final, the final play. I absolutely love that. I, th- I think that's the weakest one of the three, don't you? No. I I would agree. I I think the mm. first two are stronger, the absurdist yeah. and stuff. Yeah. I mean, mm. one of the points I made about the middle one, "Don't Look Back in Hunger," is how absurd. It's almost like Python-esque. The sketch doesn't really have a punchline other than, "Well, where can you get a cup of tea at this time of night?" Yeah. And it yeah. just sort of ends. Yeah. It's it's yeah. quite. Yeah. It feels ahead of its time, doesn't it? I was getting quite interested, but don't carry on. There's no more. That's it. <laughs> That's the end of the play? Yes. There's plenty of place to end. Well, we told you the author doesn't offer a solution, he just poses the problem. But what was the problem? Where can you get a cup of tea at this time of night? <laughs> it's, it's probably something to do with what you were saying earlier, John, that these were three bits of work that they've been working on and kind of mm. stitched them together to come up with this programme. And... Uh, you know, it might have just been that they'd been working on this and didn't have an ending to it. And as you say, it ends up in this Python-esque ending. And it must be very disappointing for Martin that there's not a circular script there. Well, no, no. circular script this week. I mean, <laughs> no, it's not so good. But it's really interesting because there's, if you look at the script, the introduction to Look Back in Hunger from Kenneth has got a big chunk missing. And I'm presuming that's because if if I when you look at Wilmot, it looks like East Sheen Drama Festival was not in the BBC archives back in the mid-70s. Yeah. So I'm guessing that what we have is the transcription service edited copy. Mm. Mm. But in, in the script, Kenneth says, that bit, which is in the episode now, 
The curtain rises, and we see several stagehands pushing the furniture into position. And, uh, <laughs> and the curtain is lowered again. And then he goes on to say, a little about this play, Mr. John Eastbourne is himself an angry young man who feels strongly about the frustration of the contemporary social conventions and conditions which continually frustrate our lives. He rebels at conformity, and this is the theme of the play. He offers no solution, just poses the problem. Oh, I see. Right, right. Which then makes more sense of yeah, the, yeah. The, the line at the end of the play mm. when Kenneth, of course, says, what was the problem? So when they were cutting it for timing for the transcription service, that's the bit they cut out. Mm. That's the bit they cut out. That's right. Mm. Yes. And then at the, at the end of the play, and I've always wondered about this because when you listen to the recording, at the end, Tony says, thank you so much for look back in hunger. There wasn't that controversial. Thank you so much for look back in hunger. Yeah, it wasn't that controversial. Right, that should have been long enough for now to our third offering. Doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But that's because there's a sentence in the middle that TS, transcription services, have cut out. Because he he says, there wasn't that controversial. There will now be a short interval for you to discuss the salient points and merits of that play. Right. That should have been long enough. Now to our third offering. Oh, I see. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, well, the the longest recording of it is 29 minutes and 34 seconds long. So, Mm. yeah, you can imagine they could have got another 30 seconds to a minute in there. Some of them run to 31 minutes, don't they? So They do. I mean, it yeah. might be that it was cut at rehearsals. Of course, that we won't know unless we find an original, an original broadcast episode to, to, to compare. But that little bit yeah. just seemed very odd that that was cut. I just felt that uh, that third play really justified everything. I know you guys say that it's, it's your weakest of the three. However, mm. Sid James trying to talk German. What's not to love? <laughs> My wunderbar. What is it, Magdalena? We are going to have a baby. Oh, wunderbar, wunderbar. <laughs> wunderbar, wunderbar. Thank you, thank you. We'll let you know, it's quite in order for Mr. James to... <laughs> it's quite in order for Mr. James to break into a song like this as Beethoven's dad was an operatic tenor. But I think for the sake of the music lovers, we'd better forget that, don't you see it? <laughs> yeah. I was looking forward to a bit of the old singing there. <laughs> I just wonder, it does feel like that's, that's just him making up German on the spot rather yeah. than anything scripted yeah. at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's just Heinrich, yeah. yeah. You have a baby. <laughs> wunderbar, wunderbar. Heinrich? Yeah. <laughs> Achtung, was ist das, mein lieb Milch? Absolutely fantastic. I love the line as, as well. It's like, oh, you've had it then? Uh, in <laughs> yeah. relation to having the baby. Well, I couldn't wait for you to stop mucking about kind of thing. Look, Heinrich, we have a baby, son. Oh, you've had it then. Well, I couldn't wait for you two to finish arguing. <laughs> Hancock actually says the part of Beethoven's dad is being played and not too well by Sidney James, doesn't he? Yeah, he actually says yeah. that. A part of Beethoven's dad is being played and not very well by Sidney James. <laughs> and then after Wonderbar, he says it's quite in order for Mr. James to break into song. <laughs> As Beethoven's dad was a professional singer or something like that, isn't it? Well, the real Sid James was quite good with his accent. You know, he could do a passable American and 
various other sort of European accents, but I think this one is deliberately off. You know, not yeah, off. not quite right. But it's quite fun. It is. It is it's, fun. It's great fun. I'd forgotten it only lasts for that first few lines though, and then he goes back into his standard patter and standard voice. The bit I, I I love in that is the bit where you get the gramophone recording of Lichtenstein Polka. Polka. And yeah. uh, and then Hancock says, and that's for, I was asked to add this in because they missed it on Housewife's Choice this morning. <laughs> yeah. So very soon all over Germany they were singing. Yeah. This is the Lichtenstein Polka. This uh, wasn't one of Beethoven's, but they didn't have time to play it this morning on Housewives' Choice, and they asked me if I could possibly... They <laughs> asked me if I could possibly squeeze it in. It was for Mrs Emily Cravat from her old 80 years friends to remind her of all the happy times they had at the Gunsight Cobham. But did you notice the name, though? It's Emily Cravat. And this yeah. episode was broadcast 8th of April, 58. But yeah. Mrs. Cravat didn't appear on television until The Two Murderers in October 59. Oh, right. So unless any listeners have spotted any earlier appearances, I think this is the first appearance of Mrs. Cravat. That's interesting, isn't it? Or is she not mentioned in an earlier radio show anywhere or something? No, I, ne- I haven't I heard don't, of her. I don't remember. I don't no. think so. I don't no. think so. Anyone knows differently? Prop us an email. That line, though, when he talks about Housewife's Choice and uh, the request, and he reads, he reads that out. It gets a massive laugh at the end of it, which is disproportionate to the, uh, the quality of the joke. And yeah. I, was, I was wondering whether he'd fluffed it a couple of times. And then, you know, when people laugh, when you fluff it a couple of times and eventually get it right. Um, I wonder whether it was that sort of scenario, because it, it, does, it, does, seem, uh, it does seem too, too big a laugh for, for, the, for the actual gag. It does. I wonder if it's a kind of a reference on that was something that would occasionally happen on the radio if if Housewife Choice had to end and they might include it in the next show. I don't know. Mm. So it is. It, you are right though. It it is um quite a big laugh for the joke. I wonder if it's because it became it was such a, a shock to the audience hearing him saying it because it was so out of keeping with the rest of the show. Yeah, could have been because it was a bit of a shock laugh. I suppose, mm. but... Um... There's a lot of lines in the Beethoven one. Of course, I suppose that's based on, I don't know, typically, you know, that kind of... There would have been plays and dramas about Beethoven throughout the 20th century, surely. But I love the line where he says, uh, you know, I've been studying the piano. Oh, yes, and what have you discovered? Well, it's a big black thing with three legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mother, father, I have returned. What have you been doing for 13 years? I have been studying the piano. And what have you decided? It's a big black thing with three legs. <laughs> Heinrich Hassan is a genius. I like the one where he says uh, about Moonlight Sonata is on the back of freight train. Yeah, that that is that is brilliant. And of course, the first uh, the first time it's played, it's played and brilliantly played badly. It is for, for a for, you know for a, a pianist who can play playing badly must be so difficult to do. Mm. Well, it's different, mm. isn't it? Because he's the only one with none of. Wally Stott's linking pieces. Yeah. So it was yeah. Kathleen O'Hagan who was on the mm. piano in this episode playing the music and playing it wonderfully with dropped keys and notes and things. This little round one with nothing in the middle just there and this black one with the tail hanging down here, a couple of golf clubs here and a big black one with a dot next to it here. 
Now, I wonder what that sounds like. Gee, it's easy, isn't it? <laughs> After that, nothing can stop young Luda. And then I noticed that uh, Tony refers to the pianist as he all the way through then, mm. even though it was... Uh, was Kathleen. Clearly a, la- yeah. a lady called Kathleen who was, uh, who was playing. And within a few years, he had written his first sonata. Then came his second sonata. <laughs> then came his third sonata. <laughs> then the fourth sonata. <laughs> I think you could have done with half a crown's worth of Mozart <laughs> I think when uh, Tony's introducing all the characters at the start, does he refer to as Miss Pew or... He refers to her as Hattie, doesn't he? It's it's the only time she's referred to as Hattie, yeah. yeah. It's, it's Hattie or or Miss Jakes. At yeah, that's one, right. At one point, doesn't that it? That was the one thing that surprised me. I t- and Kenneth Williams is named as himself as well. And uh, I think it's where he says that um, where she stole all the hearts in Moby Dick. In that scene where she upturned the boat. In the scene where she overturned <laughs> the boat. Yeah, there's a couple of unfair yeah. comments like that, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a funny line, but it is a little bit mean. But then, mm. you know, there are similar jokes about Tony's character, so you can kind of... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Parents will be played by my good self. And Miss Hattie Jakes, who is best known for her sterling performance in Moby Dick. <laughs> when she won all our hearts, in the famous scene where she overturned the boat. (laughs) Mr. Sidney James will be seen as the villainous, unscrupulous, money-grabbing landlord, a role which requires no acting ability on his part whatsoever. One of the things with Jack's return home, did you know there's a, a Michael Caine link to it? Did you know that? No, I didn't. Oh, no, didn't know that. Right, not, well, a lot, um, not a lot of people know that. Not a lot of and not a lot of not people, a lot know, of that, people know that. Not, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, basically, Michael Caine was in a film called Get Carter, and Get Carter was based on a book called Jack's Return Home, oh. and uh, oh. the novel by Ted Lewis. In the book, Jack Return Home, his house in Newcastle, uh, he describes going into the house and. Uh, it says, you know, like there's a TV Times and a Radio Times and stuff like that. And there are uh, some records. And amongst the records is the 1960 Pie record, you know, this is Hancock. Oh, there we go. Now, he also says, and uh, it's also been suggested, no more than that, that the original title of Ted Lewis's book could have been a small tribute to Hancock who had died the previous June before he started writing the novel. Hmm. So the novel came out in 1970, Hmm. and he started writing it shortly after Hancock's passing. And he Hmm. was clearly a Hancock fan. And uh, so, so, yeah, so the book was called Jack's Return Home, possibly in tribute to Hancock, and then they made a film out of the book, and the film was called Get Carter with Michael Caine. So I've got a question about Jack's return home. Um, mm. The line where Hattie says, Oh, Jack, Jack, are you all right, Jack? Draws a bit of a laugh. If only one word would come from him, I could spend my Christmas in peace. Oh, Jack, Jack, are you all right, Jack? 
There, there, Martha, me old darling, don't go fretting yourself. <laughs> is that simply because of the? Is that because of the? I've heard the saying. No, I wonder if it's because of saying I'm all right, Jack. Yeah, there, yeah. there is a saying I'm all right, Jack, and I think uh, it was. This was actually, but there was a famous film with Peter Sellers called that, but that came later in 1959, I think. It did, but it was it was like one of those sort of slang terms, like, I'm yeah, all right, Jack, yeah. as in, like, I'm yeah. okay, it's damn everyone else kind of thing. Because it draws quite a laugh. I think the film was called that because it was a popular saying, and I think particularly in, in those sort of post-year period, you know, there was an element of I'm all right, Jack, and, uh, you know, and I think it in the film it was... Uh, to do with trade unions and stuff like that. Yeah. I think I think there was that sort of concoction with it. Well, the, the internet tells me it's a British expression used to describe people who act only in their own interests, even if providing assistance would take minimal to no effort on their behalf. So it's like, well, you know, you fall in the mud. Well, I'm all right, aren't I? I'm not going to help yeah. you out of it kind of attitude, I suppose. There, there might have been something in the news at the time because, you know, you, you can imagine newspapers using that expression today when people do certain things or whatever you know you can always find circumstances where it fits and it might it might have been something that had been in the news which gives it a bigger laugh than it might otherwise have got mm. or on the front page of the daily mail as it would be to now exactly yeah well if it was a, a sort yeah. of a, a sort of one of those cockney phrases that galton and simpson would weave into their scripts mm. you know there's bits of polari in there and everything so, yeah, you can imagine it being kind of uh, a phrase that would have been used in the media and things like that as well, so it would be one familiar. I find it especially interesting in that um, first play, um, Jack's Return Home, is that you're listening to a radio show about a play that there's a fictitious audience that Hancock is talking to. Mm. Uh, in a t- entirely, it just, it's just got so many layers to that, hasn't it? Yeah, it's just, yeah. You do wonder, I think it, it does feel like a bit of a cutting room floor episode doesn't I, it? I love it when he says i'll strangle her one day and then says to the audience i'm getting fed up with this part already um <laughs> yeah. br- yes br- brilliant asides to the audience are yeah. always entertaining yeah. in yeah. in shows though aren't they although he was rich and handsome and you are poor and ugly i'm still glad i married you my poor ugly little husband <laughs> i'll strangle her one day so <laughs> No, no, me old darling, don't fret yourself. I'm fed up with this part already. <laughs> and, and then I think, um, I think it was also probably very close to the BBC guidelines on what you could and couldn't say when mm. the curtain falls on Sid, because yes. he says, "I'm underneath this ruddy curtain." Mm. Now I don't know how strict the BBC would have been on words like "ruddy" back yeah. in the 1950s but it feels like it's quite that would could be could have been quite controversial and as the curtain falls right across the middle of the stage (laughs) we see a middle-class suburban drawing room enter mrs porter talking to her husband i don't understand young jimmy he's not like a normal boy harold you must talk to him harold harold where are you Underneath the ruddy curtain, get it off me. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> well, I'll leave the end up and you crawl out. I can't see. Where are you? Well, stop thrashing about. I'll thrash you about when I get out. <laughs> Don't 
Don't you talk to me like that. I shall report you to the union. It's not my fault the curtain fell on you. Well, get on with it. We can't. He's got caught under the curtain. And now enter the hero. Four minutes too early to help drag the curtain. <laughs> Well, I'll say, I got, I got told off in about 1989 at school for using the word ruddy because I didn't right. know it was a swear word. Because oh. it, uh, my yeah. understanding was that people used ruddy um, just in, in place of saying bloody, which was mm. the word you couldn't say. Like blooming, blooming hell. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, it's to do with having a ruddy, flat-faced complexion, isn't it? Sort of being sort of red and, you know, out in the weather and stuff, isn't it? Is that where the phrase comes from, ruddy? Or is there another use of the word? I don't know. Yeah, certainly, enough that would be another use of it. But uh, but I, I listened to that and I thought well, I can't think of that in any other episode. No, no, um, no, I haven't. And, no, and and I do wonder how, as I say, mm. how close to the BBC guidelines that would have been. Mm. Because a few a few years later, there was a big row over Steptoe and Son using the word bleeding, wasn't there? And that yeah, was the was. first that was the first time that that word had been used on TV, and the BBC. I think wanted it taken out, and uh, Galton and Simpson and the producer fought tooth and nail to keep it in. Well, was it Galton? Uh, Johnny Spate, who was also part of Associated London Scripts and adapted um, mm. the Chef that Died of Shame to TV in Galton Simpson while they were on holiday. You know, in an interview, he said about um, Till Death Has Do Part, he was allowed four bloodies or two tits. Yeah, I tried yeah. to argue for one tip, but he said, well, you've been lopsided, <laughs> then you've got to have two tips. So um, there was that kind of to and fro with what you could, mm. how many mm. you could get away with. I think mm. it probably sailed along the signs of it, mm. lines of acceptable. Mm. They, they do that now with the F word, don't they? You're allowed so many or whatever in, in a program after nine o'clock or something. I, I, I imagine the rules are a bit more lenient these days. Mm. I mean, crikey, I remember seeing um, that Jerry Springer, the musical on BBC Four in the early noughties and being oh, entertained but surprised mm. um, that it was allowed to be broadcast. A lot of people were very cross about it. Not me, mm. I thought it was funny, but mm. there we go. Mm. But what, what I don't know if any of you have been watching the ITV series Unforgotten, but I think no. it might have been episode four, um, the F word is used. Mm. And then at the beginning of episode five, which would have gone out immediately after the nine o'clock threshold, that scene is shown as part of the catch-up at the beginning, and the F word is replaced with a a, a less um, difficult expletive. Right. Flipping kids. <laughs> so that and that's got to be has got to be because it was closer to the nine o'clock threshold because in the original yeah. episode yeah. it was towards the end. Yeah, I just thought. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, and the only reason I noticed it is because I watched we watched the two episodes back to back. Back to back. Yeah. On yeah. Um, on ITVX. Yeah, a lot of these things have to be sanitised. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the film Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> yes, I am, sadly. <laughs> I didn't expect that to get mentioned in this podcast. There's a TV safe version where he says, I've had enough of these monkey-fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane, replacing two words that they couldn't broadcast at two o'clock in the afternoon on. Yes. <laughs> it must be like when you were editing this podcast, John, all this effing and jeffing that goes on. Uh, it's all from Tim. He's, you know, he's potty mouth. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> Here's another rabbit hole we can go down. You said at the very start of this podcast, John, that this was broadcast on the 8th of April, 1958, which indeed yes. it was. And in fact, the 8th of April, isn't that also the date that Punch and Judy Man came out in 63? It is indeed. Five years later to the day. So there, there's a connection there. But also... 
One question that I'd like to put to you is when was it recorded? Because if you read Wilmot, it says it was recorded on the 23rd of February. If you yeah. read Weber, it says it was recorded on the 23rd of March. And if you look at the dates, it would be much more logical for Weber to be, create, to be correct and for it to be done on the 23rd of March. But, and here's the big but, whichever date it was recorded on, it was recorded with another episode. So mm. if it was recorded on the 23rd of February, it would have been the same date as the unexploded bomb. And if it was recorded on the 23rd of March, it would have been the same date as the election candidate. Now, I hadn't, I hadn't realized before that I knew Series 6 were done two episodes at a time back to back, but I, in all my time and all the number of occasions I've picked up my Wilmot, I've never realized that two of these episodes were recorded on the same day. Well, I've discovered two things in looking up the original scan of the script that we have in the archives. It was recorded on Sunday the 23rd of March, and it was actually transmitted first on Tuesday the 15th of April. So I've uh, got the dates wrong in my intro. But uh, yes, Tuesday the 15th of April. Did you get the dates from... No, I think Wilmot I got them from our website. I think think Wilmot says the 8th. I'm just looking at Wilmot now. Yeah, so the the Wilmot says, as you say, Tim, recorded 23rd of Feb, broadcast 8th of April, and the 15th of April was the Foreign Legion. Yeah. The script script says recorded 23rd of March, transmission 15th of April. The transmission date on the script might be wrong because at the time of broadcast, at the time of recording, they might have changed it. Yeah, changed the running order or something. I'm going to look up the Foreign Legion now. Yeah. What we'll need is the PASVs. We will. We will indeed. That'll, that'll clarify for us. Interesting, oh. though. Yeah, yeah so... so uh, 15th of April is the broadcast date for the Foreign Legion, according to the script. Maybe they changed the day of the week it was being broadcast. Yeah. And recorded on the 6th of April. Interesting. So, yeah, so there was some, some change around, potentially, with when things were broadcast and some yeah. episodes were switched mm, yeah. or something like that. And I think, apart from Series 6, this is the only occasion when two episodes were recorded on the same day, it appears. Yeah, so Tim, what was the time, what was the other episode recorded 23rd of March? Uh, That would have been the election candidate. Okay. That's what I wrote down here. I'm just having a look. The script says recording for East Team Drama is 8.15 to 9, and the election candidate, which was on two weeks before recording 9 to 9.45. Mm-hmm. There you right. go. Yeah. So the timings work for it to be yeah. both yeah. both recorded on the same night. Yeah. yeah. A busy week for them then. Goodness. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But then recorded yeah. and broadcast in a different order. Yeah. It's yeah. funny the things you find out when you look into these, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> Interesting snippets. I mean, mm. the thing is, this episode has some of the best lines in it. I mean, the, in the... There's a great line, I think, in each sketch, as it were. So in the first one, it's by Hattie. It was like, you know, no, mother, no, I'm not dead. Or no, mother, no, I'm not dead. Wait, you haven't one yet. The insurance I had on the poor lad will be enough to pay you and keep us from want for the rest of our days. Mercy, who can that be at the door? Mother, father, tis I, your son, Jack. I have returned home. Saved, it is Jack. Pay off the wicked landlord, Jack. I can't, Mother. I'm broke. (laughs) No fortune, Jack. 
Not a farthing, not a penny, father, but I have returned home. Oh, Jack, we thought you were dead. No, mother, it was the boy next door. I'm not dead. <laughs> well, you are now. <laughs> ah, my old darling, you shot Jack. Yes, and I took out a policy on you as well, so watch it. <laughs> I took out a policy on you as well, so watch yourself. You know, that's a great line by Hattie. I love that one. And then in the um, in the rant about tea, you know, you've got the whole shut up and put your trousers on, which gets a great laugh. And then and it takes a moment for him to wait for the audience reaction to die down. He goes, no, no, I want to be different. I'm not going to get into a rut. I can't be the same as everyone else. Oh, shut up and put your trousers on. <laughs> to be different. <laughs> Which again is beautifully done by Bill Kerr. And another huge reaction from the audience to that. It certainly is, yeah. And then, you know, in the third one, I don't think there's one that quite quite caught me, but there is, again, in Look Back in Hunger, there's that line about those, those great cod's eyes staring at me all glassy. <laughs> and those mutton chop lips as well. I mean, that's a wonderful that performance is by both of them. And the great Cod's Eyes were, was referred to Tony in quite a few of the episodes previously and on the TV episodes, the uh, you know, great Cod's Eyes. Oh, but why didn't you tell us you like fish? We could have got some in. Well, I put my coat on and pop out. I don't like fish. I can't stand fish. I hate fish. Why don't you make up your mind? I'm not eating your fish. It reminds me of her. Those great cod eyes staring at me, dead and glassy. Nothing, nothing going on behind them. Just great, glassy cod's eyes. Yeah, I see what you mean. <laughs> she has got cod's eyes when you come to think of it. And them great mutton chop lips. And then I love, I love uh, Sid's responsive. Oh, yeah, she is a bit of a horror, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> Which is just brilliant. Yes, that's right. Now you know what I mean. Yeah, you're right, did right, boy. She is a bit of a horror, isn't she? Oh, that's better. It's nice to see you two getting on together. Another cup of tea, Harold. Tea? Tea? Is that your answer to it all? Tea? My favourite line actually isn't from the plays. It's from Kenneth. Right. And I just, I just love it. This last play is in this trilogy of three is the third yeah. one in the programme. I'm just brilliant. <laughs> and the last play in this trilogy of three is the third one in the programme. <laughs> the East Cheam Festival is, of course, not only a drama festival, but also a showcase for the world's greatest music. Touches of Douglas Adams' trilogy is the fourth in this trilogy of five or something like that they had, because um, he kept writing the books. He kept writing, and at the end, they... they... It came up with this is the fifth story in the in the increasingly inaccurately named trilogy. That was it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah brilliant. It just feels like a like a Tim Vine sketch show. It's just sort of pun- line after line after line after line after line. I just love it. Mm. I think it's just mm. a good bit of fun. It's just a brilliant, brilliant episode. Yeah, it is great fun. Mm. And funnily enough, I, I know it's your favourite, James, but it it wasn't mine. But it's been really good to 
prepare for this podcast and listen to it several times. Same me, same me, yeah. yeah. With a critical eye, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And it's really grown on me a lot because of doing that. The same happened to me when we did the 13th of the series. Um, we did that because that was Martin's favourite. Um, it wasn't one of my favourites, but actually, when you listen to it with a critical mm. ear, it's actually pretty, pretty, pretty good. And the same with this one, yeah, yeah. Mm. I just really get the sense that they're all genuinely having fun and yeah, quite yeah, happy yeah. in this. It feels like it's series five, so it's a really strong series. Mm. I just feel like they're having great fun um, whilst mm. doing this. I, I, you can feel, I don't know, maybe it's just because it's well-performed and well-written, but you can just feel they're, they're quite happy and they're all very comfortable working together. Yeah, It is kind of, it is yeah. the, kind of the A-team of that series. Everyone said what a great time they had mm. making these radio shows. Bill Kerr said it was the greatest time of his life. Gorton Simpson said they were fantastic days. You know, mm. there's a lot, of, a lot of negativity is often spoken around Hancock and his mental health and his nervousness mm. and stuff mm. like that. But once he got in front of the microphone, there was just no stopping him. And they, they all loved each other. They worked as a team professionally. And as you say, it, it just... It just comes through, doesn't it? That what what a wonderful time they were having. Yeah, and I mean it's the laughter in the background, um, mm. as, as the various jokes or the mm. corpse thing that takes place. It's very clear they're all they're all having the greatest of times. Absolutely, yeah. I did really enjoy as well the uh, when uh, Tony's getting heckled by the audience member, i.e. Kenneth, and then suddenly it's is there boxing on tonight? I had no idea. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love that sort of that kind of interaction with Kenneth playing various audience members um, mm. and the, the, the whole idea of, well, well if, I didn't, if I'd known that, I wouldn't have come along here tonight, you know, kind mm. of thing. <laughs> yeah, mm. but it's interesting. Again, there's another bit in the script that's missing because um, after Tony says, oh, it's the, the police versus the army, Kenneth says, oh, really? And then he turns around to the audience and says, I say, did you hear that? There's some boxing on tonight. And then Hattie <laughs> says, there you are, two big mouths, aren't you? All the audience have gone now. Well, I'm not performing without an audience for one. And then it says, Tony says, the show must go on. We have a duty to the theatre. May I remind you, we still have a vast radio audience listening. So there's a little bit extra there. And, and, and the, the, the idea is that the audience has walked out to go and watch the boxing. That's brilliant. <laughs> it's a good one, isn't it? It's that thing as well. It must be... You know, they're all known as gigglers. Golden Simpson said in many interviews, they're all gigglers, all the cast mm. of this. And there's a lot of that in between stuff. But it must be really entertaining being uh, an actor playing an actor playing something badly. If you see what I mean, you know, it's that sort of levels of comedy. Of must be more difficult to play something badly intentionally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like Bill's thing with prompt. Hello, mum. Hello, mum. Uh, prompt. Prompt. Hello, Dad. Mm. Hello, Dad. Uh, prompt. It's not your turn. You know, <laughs> brilliant stuff. And then he goes on to put in the fantastic performance as the disaffected young lad. Yeah. What What a great performance from Bill that is. Yeah, it really yeah. is. It's a great performance. I'm glad he gets to sort of, sort of show off a little bit there, doesn't he? It, there's a great range. Oh, he does. Well, particularly as that bit is then, as we say, it's probably two or three minutes without Tony at all. Mm. The, the three of them just um, bounce off each other brilliantly. Any of those parts Bill could play, though, where he played, you know, uh, a different role in The Chef That Died of Shame, you know, 
Grant Faversham or something like that. Mm. You know, he he was really really good, and I I think Bill's a very underrated. You kind of you think of the main cast, you kind of forget about Bill a little bit because he's he plays the Dalt character, but he doesn't only play that, and he is no. great. He's always been one of my favourites. He's a very talented actor, very mm. talented. I think it was uh, Martin mentioned early on about uh, Dolly bringing around the drinks on sticks. Mm. At this stage, I have to ask the uh, Hancock quiz question. Uh, who are the other four Dollies that we know through Hancock? Ooh. Well, is it Dolly Clackett in this Dolly one? Dolly Clackett. Dolly Clackett is heard... Uh, sorry, she's mentioned but never seen. Yeah, that's right. So it's that's different one. to Dolly who's passing the drinks round. So you've got the drinks on the stick lady in this one. You've got Dolly Clackett, um, who is one of Hancock's birds who we, we never get to meet. And there are three others. Is there a Dolly Cravat in there somewhere? Did she get uh, a, a different forename? Well, uh, I shall, uh, I shall uh, tell you. They are first of all, we have uh, uh, Hattie. Hattie plays Dolly the fortune teller in the Punch and Judy Man. Oh, of course, yeah. Yes. We also have Miss Hardgreaves, the librarian in the Missing Page. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. And then we have Dolly behind the counter in the chip shop in City in Love. Of course, yes. Yeah, and Dolly behind the counter in the chip shop in City in Love played um, Terry Scott's mum in Hugh and I. Yes, yes. Which yeah. is uh, she's great in that as well in the mm, first mm. few series. I think she's in most of the ones that exist. They really like the name Dolly because Dolly Clackett turned up in Steptoe as well, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, and she actually appeared there, didn't she? I'm gonna say we actually saw her in Steptoe. Mm. Um, so obviously a favourite a favourite name of Ray's, mm. Ray and Allen's. Mm. I don't know if they knew any Dolly or Dorothy somewhere that, that made them use that name. Was, was there not a Dolly in the Scandalous magazine or am I... It was Mabel Under the Table. Oh, Mabel yeah, Under Mabel. the Table, yeah. 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 Mabel Under the Table in the Scandal magazine. Yeah. I did notice a couple of, uh, there's no topical references, but there's a couple of interesting things. I looked up the vamping chart because I hadn't come across that. So Beethoven did a couple of... Um, couple of his symphonies or uh, and then he got a vamping chart and knocked off another seven or eight and so beethoven became more prolific he bought himself a vamping chart <laughs> and within a few years he had written his first sonata and it says it was a piece of cardboard you put on the piano which marks the chords using colors oh, right. so that's how he managed to compose a whole lot more mm. uh, i'd never come across the term vamping chart so i had to look that one up mm. no never heard of it that passed me by listening back to it. I hadn't even noticed the reference no, because no. It's, it's not musical. It just went straight over my head Yeah, because I'm not musical. And uh, the little um, little reprimand to the pianist to say, get back to the bioscope, you ratbag. <laughs> oh, get him out of here. <laughs> Go on, get back to the bioscope, you ratbag. <laughs> Your indulgence, ladies and gentlemen. That'll be the theatres, won't it? Well, I yeah, I looked it up and it says it was an early motion picture projector which sometimes comes with a gramophone attached. Ah. So there we go. It's like, a, a, I would imagine it was more of a home type thing or a portable type um, mm. gadget. But I thought that was quite an interesting one as well. Both of which must have been well known to the audiences of the day, I guess. But um, probably passes us by the, today because that's uh, probably a very old fashioned term. Mm. But I thought there was a couple of interesting bits, but not anything really topical in this one. Um, which I guess is because it was all the, the little playlets. Yeah. 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 Well, I think then it's set time for the score. So what do you think you're going to give that one, James? As if I didn't know. It's going to be a solid 10. As I have mentioned, it's 
It is a real laugh a minute. It's really high paced. I think everyone in there performs exceptionally. I think if it was a bit of a cutting room floor job, I think it's been put together masterfully. All three shows I loved and the intervals, the punctuations from Kenneth Williams are absolutely fantastic. The interaction from Tony with the audience. I just loved it. I just It's a real favourite of mine from, for the best part of 35 years, it's been a favourite of mine and I never get tired of listening to it. And over the last few weeks, I've listened to it quite a lot, obviously in preparation for this show, but mm. yeah, it just never fails to disappoint. Never fails not to disappoint, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, yeah, 10, there's no, other, there's no other score for it. Fantastic lines. Sid's laugh is brilliant as he gets introduced as the uh, money-grabbing uh, landlord, a part which requires no acting ability whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, 10. Well, I'm, I'm, it's not my favourite, but I've certainly grown to like it a lot more having listened to it several times for this podcast. And as you say, James, it's very well put together. It's very clear that everyone's having so much fun. The, 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 all, the reaction from the audience, the laughter from the cast behind the scenes, the corpsing, uh, everyone's enjoying themselves. The playlists are very well done. And the John Osborne or John Eastbourne play Look Back in Hunger, the, the little... Uh, spoof of the play of that was clearly uh, uh, live at the time uh, I just think it's absolutely brilliant and I love the Kenneth doesn't have a huge amount to play in this one and it's nearly all very straight into the microphone as the the announcer between the sketches but he performs the lines brilliantly and what great lines he's got so it's a nine from me yeah it's uh, like Martin it's not one of my Top favourite episodes, but again, like Martin, listening to it in preparation for this podcast made me appreciate it a bit more. I like what James said at the beginning, I think he said about um, it demonstrates Gorton and Simpson's confidence that they're able to do something like this. And I think that's, that's, that's an excellent point because, you know, you've got this show that's top of the ratings, you know, and millions of people listen to it every week. Um, and you've got some great episodes in this series. And all of a sudden, you go completely off piece and, and do something like this and, and take Hancock in a different direction. And I think, I think James is absolutely right. It, it shows a huge amount of confidence by the writers in able to do something different and, and knowing that the cast will respond to it. I mean, I think we've, uh, we, we've known before that the cast didn't see these scripts until the last minute. Certainly Hancock didn't see them until he turned up for the read-through. Whether they discussed it or not previously, I don't know. But it, if they did, it would have been unusual for them to do so. But they turned up, the cast, the cast brought in, you know, a brilliant performance. As Martin said, they were thoroughly enjoying it and all that sort of thing. The only sort of downside for me is I, I, I do really prefer the, the normal sort of 30-minute uh, sitcom drama. I, I love the East Gene setting and all that. Mm. And I, I, I do prefer those sorts of episodes. Um, I don't dislike this episode at all. It's just not one of my top favourites. But I think I think the writing is very clever. The performances are excellent. Bill Kerr mentioned earlier, I think he played a blinder, and, and indeed, as did the others. I'll come down a little bit and give it a solid eight. Well, I was I was thinking of a sort of an, an eight myself, Tim, but I think there's sort of the two first sections of it really shine for me, and I think there's three lines in this particular episode that stand out to me it's Hattie's reaction with the well you are now um the shut up and put your trousers on and those great cod's eyes 
which get all great, great reactions, all beautifully performed by the cast. And I think that elevates it to a nine in my view. So I think we're going to, have to give this one a nine just because it, it's got it's got a lot of fun to it. It's something a bit different, but it doesn't stand out as different enough from the standard episode to not enjoy in the same way you can enjoy one of the standard ones. And it's just something that's quite unusual. And unusual is nice. <laughs> I like unusual. That's where I live. So I uh, I think an average of uh, nine points overall is a darn sight more than an armful. So I think that's about it for this week. If you want to take it away, Tim. Why not join the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society today? You can find us at tonyhancock.org.uk for all the information you need on how to join. For just £13 a year, you'll have access to the members area of our website and receive four magazines a year by email packed with information on Tony, his shows and archive material. Members also get a digital-only bonus page supplements every quarter. Or you can have full-colour printed copies posted to your door for £16 in the UK or £26 worldwide. And we're a friendly and welcoming bunch, so please do join. We have reunion events with archive displays, guest speakers and special screenings. Please get in touch. We'd love questions, conundrums and feedback. To do so is very easy. Just send us your email to podcast at tonyhancock.org.uk. Keep an eye on our Twitter accounts for the latest news on the podcast and all things Tony Hancock. Our Twitter accounts are East Team Lad, Tony Hancock Appreciation Society and Very Nearly an Armful. In the next episode, we'll be reviewing Hancock's Car from the fifth radio series. This is a classic episode and my personal favourite as it was the first episode of Hancock's Half Hour I ever heard when it was repeated on Radio 4 on the 8th of December 1974. For now, that's very nearly an armful, so I'll say ta-ta. It's sayonara from me. Chickadee Snitch. And this is GLK London, signing off for a quick cough and a drag. Right, all together now, the Lichtensteiner polka. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I think I'd rather play Freight Train. Freight Train, Freight Train. This has been an official podcast of the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society. Unfortunately, it was not written by Alan Simpson and Ray Gordon, whoever they are. The announcer was me, Robin Sebastian, currently appearing in the saloon bar of the Hendon Racket. Mm. Of course, Freight Trade appeared in Sunday afternoon at home a couple of weeks later, didn't it? Yeah. It did indeed. It had been in the charts um, in 57, wasn't it? Yeah. Big, uh, big hit.